Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Welcome back to part two of Deborah Messing, The Activist, where we're going to talk today about Rwanda, what we were doing there, how it was, how we were feeling, and what we essentially do to try to make this world a better place. And thrilled to have Deborah back on the show. Deborah Messing! Kate Roberts! Oh my God, it's been so long. (laughs) (laughs) Part two. Well, darling, we just got back from the most incredible trip to Rwanda. (sighs) Okay, well, let's begin with the fact that I just found out that I have skin cancer. And you all heard it first here. And it was flagged and became a point of contention in Rwanda. Yes. So I am sitting on the airplane going to meet you in Kigali in Rwanda. And I look down at my shoulder and I'm like, huh, that looks a little funky. And, you know, what you do is you, I think when you go on these trips, it is a time for self-reflection. You've got time on your own. You're sitting on airplanes. You are there in the country. You start to think about, you know, you meet people, you see situations, you are experiencing extreme poverty. It's hard, right? It's yeah. hard. Yeah. And I start to imagine all these awful things after I see a mole that's a little funky on my shoulder. And Deborah, you said, Kate Roberts, make an appointment, make an appointment. And I'm like, ah, no, it's going to be fine. No, it wasn't fine. So I told you. Yeah. Oh my God. I was so pissed. This is exactly what happens. And I'm so glad you're sharing this because it is this feeling of it can't happen to me. Yeah. You know, and you've had that there for a while and you knew it grew and you knew it changed and you Mm -hmm. still weren't proactive about no. advocating for your health and you have the best health care in the world. Yeah. And you needed friends around you to say, get your ass to a doctor and just have it looked at. And then you got the news that it was cancer. And thank God, thank God you got in when you did. And, yeah. you know, it's a lesson. It's an important lesson for all well, of us. Well, thanks for pushing me. You are a Jewish mama. I am. Oh, I am. You are. You are angry. I was angry because you lied to me. I said. Well, I didn't lie. You lied. I said, I I, I said, (laughs) I want you to call and make an appointment tomorrow from Rwanda for when you land back home. Well, I was pretty quick. You said, okay, I will. Yeah, (laughs) I did get down there. The next day I said, did you make the appointment? And you said, no. Well, you know what? I have to say that when we were in Rwanda, we met an incredible woman who had breast cancer. Stage four. Stage four. And we had an amazing man with us, Dr. Kenny, who is a cancer specialist, doctor, oncology specialist. And tell the story, Deborah, of this lady. Well, I mean, I think it's important to know that I think we had driven three hours on a bus out of, of the city to this village. So we were very, very, very far 
from civilization, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we went to see these incredible women, and we'll talk about what they were doing in this village Mm -hmm. for sustainability, but they had nothing. I mean, they had nothing. It was this program called Pilot Light, the Pilot Light Foundation, run by an incredible lady, Carol Levy, who is involved in the the Body Agency Collective. I I mean, she's so inspiring what she's done with this program. So they wanted a, a couple of women to come up and tell their story about their success, about how how they were able to build a business for themselves and perhaps even be able to pass it on to their daughters. And so this woman came up and she was covered in a scarf. Half of her body was covered, including her arm. And it was very clear that she was hiding something. Something was wrong. She looked weary. She didn't look well. We were informed that she was younger than us and had a 12-year-old child who was sitting with her and that she was dying of breast cancer. Which is completely preventable, as we know. Yes. So it was very, very, very hard to look at this 12-year-old daughter recognizing that she recognized that she wasn't going to have her mother for very long. And afterwards, I saw Dr. Kenny speaking with her off to the side. And I walked over and he asked me to sit down. She said that I was welcome to sit down. And he said, do you want to show Deborah? And she lifted her handkerchief and she showed me her breast. I can't put into words what I saw. It looked like, I guess, what I would imagine like the surface of Mars would look like. There were bumps, there were things coming out. There was, it was, it was very, very dark, very discolored. And Kenny, Dr. Kenny told me later that, you know, the cancer is so bad that it's, it's now it's pushing out through the skin. Yeah. And her breast will fall off. Yes. Is what he told me. And because she was so ill, her whole arm was swollen like 20 times the size of the other arm. And she wasn't able to use her hand because they were so swollen. You know, so obviously the question was, what can be done? What has been done? And she had said that she went to the hospital and they had given her some medicine, but that was it. And that her husband had a tumor in the back of his head and he refused to get medicine. And so she was the strong one. She was taking care of the children And afterwards, I started to get emotional and uh, kept it together. And I I just said to our doctor colleague, you know, he just looked at me and he said, it's too late. There is absolutely nothing that can be done for her. She is not going to be long here. And it's clear that everyone in the village knows it, that her children know it. I think she had already arranged to have the woman in charge of pilot light to be her surrogate grandmother after she died. Yeah, they're very good friends. Very, very good friends. And this woman was just so um, strong and just matter of fact about this is my life, this is what's happened. And I just kept thinking this would never happen in America. Well, of course it wouldn't because we have the resources, right? And, you know, I was sitting there listening to her story. And I mean, if you set the scene of 
these beautiful ladies who were sitting in front of us, right? The pilot light had asked to come and tell us the story of how they went from having a few cents a day to live on to setting up this incredible enterprise where they all had the opportunity to start little businesses of their own with the small resources that Pilot Light was bringing to the table. But I mean, I just thought that that in itself, with that red box where the money was going into, which was the banking system of the village. That's right. How they had transformed their lives with so little. Yeah. And it was really profound because they were saying that there were groups of 30 women and they would pool all of their money into the bank. And then if someone had an idea for a business, they would pitch it to the other women in the group and the women would vote as to whether or not they would give the money to this person to try and start a new business. For example, someone may say, I want money because I want to buy a bicycle so I could ride an hour and get fruit so that I can come back and sell the fruit. And it had to be unanimous. And that system has worked. And all of these, these women have found vocations and have found a stability that they had never felt before. They looked incredibly confident and proud. I mean, it was palpable. And I think for me, the thing that was most moving was the fact that they're leaving, you know, a path for their children to continue these businesses. Well, that to me was the takeaway, right? You're basically getting capital into the hands of women, of mothers, right? They are starting their own businesses. They're then passing these businesses on to their daughters and sons, right? And again, I'm always looking at the big picture, right? I look at the big picture of what we did on that trip just now, where we sat three hours from Kigali in this quite a large community of at least a thousand women, right? All doing this. Mm -hmm. Then fast forward, we sit in front of members of the Gates Foundation. And, you know, what we had seen and witnessed in this community is this economic empowerment is basically what it was Mm -hmm. for women to work themselves out of extreme poverty that they live in. We had also talked to them about menstrual health and how to protect themselves and various solutions to manage their periods and those of their daughters. And we'd also talked to them about sexual reproductive health. And all of that was going on already in this community of women for a few thousand dollars, right? Yep. That entire community of women was economically empowered, access to capital, access to land, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Access to healthcare and knowledge that was so vital. Then fast forward, we sit in front of Gates and we're like, okay, you know, they had also taken the trouble to come to Rwanda to see firsthand on the ground what was necessary. And we were able to connect those dots of funders, issues, solutions, like the gaps, Mm -hmm. how it would all work together. So that to me was a real aha moment of, okay, well, this is, this is exactly what needs to happen for sustainable development. It was incredible. 
It mm. really was incredible. And I did not know what to expect on this trip. I'd never mm -hmm. been to a global conference before. Mm -hmm. You tried to prepare me and I didn't believe anything you said. I know. You kept saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, <laughs> and, you know, you would be like, it, the schedule, it's going to change every hour. That's just what happens. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. This is a conference. There has to be, you know, set times for things. No. And then we got there and, and and it was a free-for-all. I mean, from yeah. eight, 8 in the morning until 11 at night, it was like, okay, we're supposed to go to this hospital. Oh, you know what? The Gates Foundation, they'd like to have a meeting. We can do that at this time. Okay, you guys go to the hospital. We'll talk yeah. to the Gates. I mean, it was so dense, but so focused and beautifully balanced. You know, to get back to the cancer for a second. Mm -hmm. I have worked in what we call global development, right, which is essentially healthcare for marginalized communities uh, for the last almost 25 years. And cancer has been something that is very linked to HIV. It's all linked, right? I mean, cancer pretty much, well, first of all, we all have cancer in us, right? A lot of these cancers are completely preventable. And this is what we saw in that village where, you know, breast cancer, cervical cancer, skin cancer, a lot of these cancers are just simple interventions, getting a mammogram, getting a pap smear. Like these are all things that just don't even exist in the communities that we visited, right? What we know is people do not get mammograms and pap smears in Africa. It's just not considered part of your daily routine. The point that I want to make is the privilege that we have here. You know, I got home went straight in, got a biopsy. Within 24 hours, they called me. It's melanoma. We're sending you into surgery. Within a day, I was in surgery, getting it cut out. And, you know, we're now going to see, you know, what the situation is. But the point is, is that through health insurance, I was given that privilege. Mm -hmm. Now, in the developing world that we work in, Prevention tools are not there, right? There's no mammograms. There's no pap smears. God, Dr. Kenny just hit us with some facts that were astounding, including that lady and how she has suffered and how that's going to affect her. And that's going to affect the entire ecosystem of her family and her family's well-being. Thank God her daughter now has a profession that she can now take on and run the family business. The point is, is that we need simple solutions that we can innovate around for these types of communities of women around cancer, around HIV. And you and I were talking before we went to Rwanda about how progressive the government is, and they are, and they've done incredible work around healthcare, especially around HIV. And I remember saying to you, oh, we have nothing to worry about in Rwanda. Yep. HIV is completely under control. They're only 2% prevalence. But you saw a different picture when you were there and managed to sit with a number of ladies. Tell us about the reality of what happened to some of the ladies that you met. We had the privilege of having a secret meeting mm -hmm. with people from the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And they would not even give us their WhatsApp number because they were mm -hmm. convinced the government would come and imprison them. One was a refugee 
left the country to Kenya for safety. We discovered that parents are allowed to kill their children if they find out that their children are gay and the country will not prosecute. One of the gentlemen, his mother called the police and said, come get this person. I'm not his mother. Put him in prison. There was a woman who was being chased with machetes and she was running for safety and she thought she was going to be safe. And they tried to burn her alive. Mm. And, you know, these things are just so unimaginable. You're like, no, 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 this can't be, this isn't real. This can't happen. You know, there was one sweet guy who was living on the border of Rwanda Mm. and the Congo. The bombman. Yes. So that every few weeks he could relocate because he said that he couldn't stay anywhere for any length of time because as soon as people found out that he was gay, they were going to try and kill him. And, you know, none of them were able to get jobs. They got a job. They were fired, you know, pretty immediately after. There was this beautiful girl. She had been in Uganda and she was a teacher and she was loving her teaching job. And she was not open about her sexuality, but she had a friend and she told us, I, was, I wasn't even sure about my sexuality at that point. I was just curious. And people didn't like what was happening between these friends. And she was told, you're fired because you're deviant. Yeah. It's never openly said you're fired because you're gay. They find a different reason, right? No, she, she was told. She was told? Mm-hmm. Yes. But that was Uganda which we know there's a law there's mm-hmm. a law now that it's against the law to be lgbtq and that people are being executed and we found out that you know as far as as they're concerned rwanda is on its way to yeah. becoming more like uganda and kenya which is just so stunning and so for us to come with this idea in our head that oh rwanda is so progressive when it comes to the LGBTQ community because HIV levels are good. You know, we were told that the government was neutral about that community. And it's very clear that it's far from it. So that was incredibly distressing to me because we can't do anything unless we know the truth. Mm. Well, I think that they were incredibly gracious to agree to talk with us. Oh, yes. But it was so jarring to hear the reality. But, you know, I don't think all the blame can be put on the Rwandan government. I think that there's a lot that has been brought into the country. The missionaries. The missionaries who come over. And I've seen this over the last 20 years of doing this work. You know, religion has an incredible role in spreading lies and hatred. And again, these missionaries, I know somebody just reached out to you and talked about this. You asked me, what can we do? I just don't even know what we can do. I just don't know the answer to this. When I got that message, I just was like, I had no idea. Yeah. You know, what I was told yeah. was that there are some very, very wealthy, far right evangelical people in America who spend a lot of money bringing government officials from Africa over and talk to them about 
keeping their families safe and what that means, and essentially convincing them to make the LGBTQ community pariahs in the community. Well, the ramifications of this we know about, right? We have been working on the HIV issue for a really long time. Yeah. And when certain communities are forced underground to be secret, yes, that's when the problems arise. Because they won't get treatment. They won't get treatment. They're too scared to get health care. They're too scared to get condoms. They're too scared to just be who they are. And, you know, once you start persecuting these groups, then we're going to start all over again with the spread of HIV, with getting these issues under control. And, you know, it's really frightening to me. We have made such progress when we look at the spread of HIV AIDS and we look at the certain progress we've made with these interventions. Tell us a couple of those stories. This is back in that that village that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And there were five women who have HIV who were willing to talk to me. And so we we went, you know, to a private area and they told their stories. And, you know, one woman, her husband died and she thought he would just was sick. And then she found out that he died of AIDS. And you know, someone said, oh, you should be tested. And she thought it was absurd. And then she found out that she had AIDS and she had children and she could not, she could not come to terms with it. She refused to start treatment for a year because she was so despondent and she thought about killing herself. And then the doctor who had done the test that informed her that she was positive, tracked her down and said, are you taking your medicine? And when she said no, he was insistent and was basically the person who got her on track. And thank God, because she's here, she's been a great mother, but it was completely traumatizing. I mean, there's abuse, teenage girls who are abused by family members, There was a girl who her biological parents were not in her life and she was left with this other family who she loved dearly, but the children in the family did not like her. And she was told from the time she was a little girl, they they said, okay, you have this thing and you're going to be taking medicine and you're going to be fine. And so literally her whole you know, childhood. She took it and and she was in her teens. And then both of those parents died and the other kids cut her out of the family, threw her out. She was homeless and she started getting sick and she was tested. And she, it was the first time she learned that she had HIV. So, you know, this trip overall that we did, as you said earlier, was incredibly diverse. First of all, we traveled with a incredible group of people, including Harvey Grant. Oh, I'm in love. Yes, I know. I know. He's a very well-known NBA basketball player, played for the Wizards and has a family of basketball players. And, you know, the diversity of this group that we had really goes towards the solution, right? Because we met with these incredible people who are willing to tell their story, but 
at the same time, we now need to think about, okay, what needs to happen? Yes. Right? yes. What needs to happen? And just the issue of basketball and sports, right? The opportunity that we have to use this medium of sports to reach people with messages. The organizations that we met with, you know, like Conservation Nation, right? Where we did this incredible trek where we, you know, also went and looked at the endangered monkeys and learned how we can learn so much about animals because, you know, they are also instrumental in starting global pandemics like the coronavirus, like HIV. You know, we learned about the intersection of humans and animals and what do we have to do. But for me, at the end of that trip, you know, the programs that we saw, the interventions that we've seen on the ground, like doing the work, right? Really doing the work, like pilot light, like sitting with women and just understanding their basic needs of why are we still a world in poverty? Because we are, right? We're a world that still has extreme poverty, whether you're in Washington, D.C., where I am, New York City, where you are, right? There's pockets of extreme poverty. There, you know, what we see in Africa, of course, is horrendous. But we now know what needs to happen to work our way out of poverty. And, you know, taking a medium like basketball, right? Like we had some key meetings where the whole medium of sports is so powerful to reach kids with certain messages. You know, we met with an organization called Right to Play and just having Harvey there talking to these kids, you could see how powerful that is to educate kids, right? Which is what needs to happen. We sat with women talking about you know, their daughter's not going to school because they got their period. As simple as that. Like, what do they need? They need sustainable solutions, right? Which we gave them. And, you know, their faces just lit up when we started to talk about this. It was incredible. Yeah. And the work that that we're doing now is pulling together these pillars and addressing the gaps and the opportunities that we see to be out there so much money in this world, right? So much money, billions and billions of dollars. But yet we hear that PEPFAR, which is under the leadership of President Bush, a fund was put together to fight HIV. And why don't you tell the story, Deborah? I mean, it, so you actually started weeping when I you... Did. And you did. started weeping. We were having a meeting with someone from the U.S. government and... We were informed because she wanted a meeting because she said, we need your help. We need you to come to D.C. and to lobby and do whatever you can because they're going to cut PEPFAR. And I was like, what do you mean? They're, what, do you, what do you mean they're going to cut PEPFAR? And she said the contract ends the end of September. And it's been it's every year, every, every time it's been five-year contracts. And already they've said that they will not do five, that they want to do one, but they want to reconsider all of the terms and the structure by which it is determined who can and cannot get funding, which is basically code for far-right social 
concerns tailoring who is allowed to to be helped in the healthcare segment. First of all, by cutting PEPFAR, we will endanger millions of lives, right? That is for sure and certain. Second of all, you know, there's only so much money, right? There's only so much money the government can give out through USAID. And from what we know, a lot of money has been spent on the global pandemic, the coronavirus, but also the war in Ukraine. And so those decisions are made also based on, okay, well, the pie is only that big. How much money can go to these various causes? What I will say, however, which is why I was grateful that you also came on this trip and that we could really see the situation firsthand. And I'm very excited that we're also going to Ghana in October to look at a comparison. I mean, Ghana is not the country that Rwanda is. Rwanda is actually very progressive in healthcare and has done amazing work and still has its issues, but probably one of the most progressive African countries that we've worked in. Ghana is way behind and we will see that when we're there. However, where I see hope, Deborah, for these programs and where I also, when we were having our meetings with, you know, the Gates Foundation and the USAID and so on, is I think we're all on the same page that what really needs to happen is looking at the root of poverty, right? As in, well, why is that happening, right? We can't just look at healthcare. Like, we have to look at the entire ecosystem of, well, what needs to happen? And what needs to happen is, We need to empower people to have a livelihood. We need to empower people to be able to put their children through school. You know, we need to really look at that entire ecosystem and fund programs like Pilot Light that are really doing that in a really smart way at a community-based level, right, where you really can then talk to these groups about all the different pillars, right? As in, yes, we're going to keep you healthy. Yes, we you can have access to the right type of healthcare and services and products. And look at your economic and financial stability. And I love this dual approach of building sustainable programs that are not going to have to be kept alive by aid. Right. And so I'm excited about the work that we're doing together because we've seen now at a grassroots level, what needs to happen. And aid is no longer the solution that's going to stick, right? That's the bottom line. And, you know, meeting with organizations like Kasha, for instance, who are delivering these, it's like a little mini Amazon, right? Where there's community healthcare workers that are sort of going door to door teaching, you know, where to get your contraception from. And this is a for-profit, e-commerce type business that is working in last mile health. So I'm hopeful that by using these different platforms, whether it's the entertainment business, and we haven't even got into that yet, or where the entertainment business is going, but whether it's the entertainment business or the sports world or e-commerce, you know, really looking into the future of what does this world of HIV AIDS and cancer and mental health, you know, all of those different things that are just not considered as issues, right? But are so profound. But 
Yeah, I, I, I do want to put the message out there that this is not all doom and gloom, that there are really great solutions out there that are sustainable and we just need to do the work, right? We need to do the work. And we're going to do it. And we're going to do it. Deborah, how did you, when you got home, how did you process everything? Like it was so much. It was so much. Honestly, I don't think that I still have. I mean, the jet lag was a lot, but what I find with these incredible experiences is that it's very jarring and almost surreal to enter back into a first world country after seeing what we saw and understanding the need. It just feels weird to just wake up and to walk in to get a cup of coffee somewhere. It's disarming. I have been very introspective since I've been home. And I have just been giving myself time to let everything sink in because so much happened. And so much of it was worth celebrating. I mean, the connections, the partnerships that we were able to make just, as you said, it just, there's so much hope for the future, you know, but as we said, we, we learned things that let us know that we're not as far down the road as we thought we were. And just sort of having to sit with that and say, okay, what's next? What, what is working? What is not working? Which is, you know, your expertise and just making a plan. Well, the good news is, right? The world has enough money, okay? There's a lot of money out there, right? There is a lot of high net worth individuals. There are a lot of foundations. There are a lot of, you know, funds that have been put in place. There's people like you and Harvey and other people from these worlds of power that need to be procured. And the job that we're doing is we're putting those things together, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Great programs like Pilot Light and Conservation Nation and Casher and all the great programs that we saw need the resources. And as we know, those small efforts, right? That there are granular efforts need to scale and need to scale in a way that's sustainable, not, you know, throwing rice sacks out of airplanes, yes, right? That, yes, yes, That's gone yes, now. That's, yes. that's over. We're not doing that anymore. And I think you've grasped it really, really well. And this is what I was trying to explain when we were getting ready for the trip. And you were like, okay, no idea. Uh, I think you saw that then on the ground of pulling these entities together to work smarter. And I think America can learn a lot from this notion of just making it all work. Again, there's enough money, there's enough resources, but we just have to work smarter and have a plan. Well, my dear, time flies. Thank you so much for all that you do. Oh gosh, thank you. Thank you for lighting the way. You're my North Star in this space. And I always come back from these experiences feeling like, oh my God, I have so much to learn which is true, but I also feel ignited by purpose. And that is incredible. You know, there's a lot of fog. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of social media and crap. And it's frustrating, right? Like I sometimes, you know, I get back from one of these trips and I am defeated and 
I look at all the stuff that's going on in the world and I get angry and I get frustrated and I'm like, this shouldn't be this hard, right? But it is people like you, Deborah, that will really help to solve these problems. And we do live in a very powerful society. And, you know, I always say it's people who change the world. It's not money. And that is absolutely true. Just getting the right people engaged and then bringing them together in a cohesive way with a plan is what's going to change the world. And I think we saw that happen when we were in Rwanda. I mean, it was just magical. It really was. It was magical. And next, Ghana. And next, Ghana. <laughs> Maybe don't get over your jet lag too soon. I know. I know. I'm, all, <laughs> I'm already I'm already planning. And we have the outfits. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. That was so much fun, Deborah. Just so you know, we took a, an hour out of our crazy schedule and we went to a local market and we bought this beautiful fabric. I mean, was that just... It was so surreal because we were we were running around in such intense circles and all of a sudden we looked at each other and we just knew that we were just not going to make it if we didn't step away for a second. <laughs> and so we snuck away for an hour and went down the stairs into this market, into this tiny little alleyway. And there were all just from floor to ceiling, all of these incredibly beautiful textiles. And we were like, all right, let's buy fabric and let's have dresses made. <laughs> yes. And that was it. Well, it wasn't it. <laughs> that was the directive. And so we did, we bought fabric then have, finding a tailor and doing all of that became an epic, epic story on its own. And we still don't quite know how the story ends, but it was worth it. Even if we end up having absolutely nothing to wear in Ghana, it was still worth it. Well, I learned two things from the little shopping adventure. One, I have met my shopping soulmate. I didn't think that anyone could be that motivated about fabrics <laughs> and dress design than me. And then there you are. Like we are shopping soulmates. We are very efficient. We are in and out. Like we make our decisions. But then what you don't know is I just continued. I found a dressmaker. God, I have no idea who she is, but I found a dressmaker who then I sent on a shopping expedition for more fabric. <laughs> and now... I have seven outfits that are already <laughs> made and God knows oh my God. Gonna look. I cannot I'm gone wait. already, baby. I'm gone already. Well, just praying that it fits. That's it. Well, that, listen, the worst case scenario is, right, you go to a tailor here and, but I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm putting it down to an incredible story. And you can make pillows. <laughs> I don't know. I All I know is we have memories that I just will never, ever forget of all of our travels, all of our experiences. I mean, throughout how hard it was, we had laugh out loud, belly hurting moments we did. where I so love you. I so appreciate you. You're an incredible person and I'm grateful for you. Well, I feel exactly the same way about you. Thanks for being on the show, love. Thanks for having me. See you in Ghana. Okay. Bye. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. 
Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.